particularly in the last year, what I've seen a lot is founders raising large seed rounds without really testing their idea. And what we're seeing now in Europe is recycling of talent. And that's very exciting because actually we're seeing operators, experienced operators who have faced certain problems, particularly in the enterprise category. So they were building products and they would work with legacy technology, which makes it really difficult for them to build their own products. And a lot of the internal tools had to be built you know, in-house. And now those operators are leaving and saying, you know, I had to go build this. Hello, everyone, and happy new year. I hope 2024 will bring you joy, happiness and success. Muchos, muchos love, dear listeners. Thank you very much for listening. Going back to the program, today's guest is Zeynep Yavuz, partner at General Catalyst. General Catalyst has $28 billion assets under management and is one of the world's best known VC firms. They backed some of the greatest businesses that you probably are very familiar with, including Airbnb, Stripe, Discord, and Snap, among many, many others. Prior to joining GC, Zeynep worked as an operator focused on strategy and product at World Remit and invested at growth stages at TA Associates. At GC, she focuses on fintech and crypto. During this episode, we'll discuss about her career trajectory from working in investment banking to private equity to operator and now GC. We also discuss how she assesses founders at early stage and we touch on opportunities that lie at an intersection of fintech and crypto. Enjoy. Alrighty, it's recording. How are you doing? Doing super well. I'm back in London now after the holidays, so super well rested. It was a very active, you know, 10 days of holiday and a good finish with the New Year's. That's really cool. I guess you were also looking forward to come back to the office. I would assume that someone in your position, you also, you have to love work. You have to love what you're doing because it's quite intense and quite fast paced. But then also you have to make sure that you recreate, you unplug and re-energize. How did you feel like the combination of having just like 10 days of holidays and then coming back? I mean, this is like the one time of the year where you can actually take time off. So we actually at GCV, our office is shut down for two weeks at the end of the year. So I think it's really necessary. I feel super recharged to be back. And with our work, I think what you said, intense is the right word because you just need to be very focused. And that's why when I take time off, I try to do activities that requires my full immersion and attention because that's the only way you can actually be plugged from work, only if you focus on other stuff. So yeah, I'm like super ready to be back, but it was really good to just take proper time off. A lot of kind of, I do surfing and kite surfing and also did some hiking. So love being in nature and being fully immersed. You just mentioned GC General Catalyst. And I wonder, what is the career trajectory of someone that works for one of the most well-known VC firms that has $28 billion assets under management? It must be quite exceptional. I started my investing career in London with a firm called TA Associates, which was a growth and private equity firm doing late-stage investing in software companies. And I think the path to GC was more, for me, a path to venture. So my background before GC is a mix of investing, kind of late stage investing, as well as operating. I was at the cross-border payments company, World Remit, leading strategy product initiatives before I joined GC. So it wasn't a very planned path, I would say. I think going into private equity was very planned because before that I did invest in banking. So I had the training 
to go into a very structured investing role. But once I was in that investing role, I think there's a lot of different answers you can give to the question of what makes a good investor. Mm. And for me, for example, that was just gaining different experiences and working with founders in different capacities was really important to becoming a good investor. So that could be either, you know, when you're a private equity investor, you own the company, therefore you are on the board and very involved, super hands-on, a lot of levers to pull. And it's quite operationally involved. Or when you're an operator, you know, you're often working with a founder or a CEO in a relatively different capacity where you learn kind of the micro of building products from zero to one. Mm-hmm. But also if you're at a growth stage company, you also learn scaling, which is really tactical from an organizational design perspective, from a hiring perspective. So for me, it was about four stages of investing, finding the investment, doing the investment, being with that investment. So going through that growth journey and exiting the investment. For me, I think prior to GC, I wasn't really focused on where, how am I going to get to GC? It was more that how do I tick the boxes, these four boxes to become a good investor, get experience in all the categories. So that's what I got. That's what I got between investment banking, which was actually more the exiting piece because I worked on IPOs, then in operating as a board observer when I was with TA and as well as finding and doing investments there. You've been now with GC for one and a half year. How is it? It's going super well. I mean, GC, we opened our offices in Europe years ago. So it's a very entrepreneurial role. And that was one of the attractions of General Canada's for me, joining them in, in Europe. And I knew that it was going to be an entrepreneurial role. It was going to be investing, but also a lot of team building and firm building in Europe. And I joined at a particularly interesting time because it was summer of 2022. So it was almost like a clean slate. So the market correction had happened. A lot of the portfolio had already adjusted. A lot of, you know, growing companies in Europe were kind of going through this transition. I think I started at a great time because the market had already corrected. The caveat in that is probably that I needed to be patient because it was a, before I joined, you know, it was kind of the party time. Yeah. Everything was happening to price space, a lot of investments happening back to back. A lot of times, you know, the companies wouldn't, from a performance perspective, they wouldn't have much to show but they would go on from C to almost series C rounds back to back. And now those times are over. Absolutely. I mean, GC is such a big organization, I would assume. And you guys invest across stages. Can you tell us a little bit about how do you split the teams that invest, let's say, at C stage, growth? How do you split that? And what is your focus? So at GC, it's thematic first. And that's actually one of the differentiators of GC, I'd say, in the European venture landscape. And one of the reasons I decided to join GC is we have thematic groups, which are healthcare, AI, global resilience, and financial technology. We actually call it Finclusion. So that includes fintech as well as crypto. My thematic focus is more on fintech and crypto. So a lot of my investing is in the fintech crypto category. I also focus on enterprise. And most of our investment decisions we make within these sector groups. So when you, and this is only kind of for series A plus, a lot of our seed investing activities driven by, you know, the managing directors and the partners who have conviction to make the investment. We don't have a formal, you know, IC process for those small investments, but for anything series A plus, we make the decision within the sector group. And that's actually really healthy because when the founders come in, they don't have to do the zero to one basic explaining. 
Mm. Because everyone around the table is very knowledgeable on the topic. And that's also not only making the investment, but also post-investment, I think, is the best way to add value to your companies if you have a network of other companies that you're involved with that are adjacent in fintech and crypto, and you have a particular network you can help with. That's, you know, thematically focused. So that's how we make investment decisions. A lot of us are multi-stage investors. So we would, personally, I would invest anywhere from seed to growth. Some of us lean more towards early stage, others lean towards growth. So effectively, it's more of a matrix of sector and stage. And I would assume that it's a big difference or a little bit of a mind shift from private equity to seed investing. Whereas like in private equity, you go in such a granularity on all the revenue streams and margins and the 100 day plan. Whereas like at Seed, probably you just meet, you know, a team with some ideas, some experience. They can show that they can execute. How do you assess a team at Seed? So I think it would have been really difficult for me to become a Seed investor if I hadn't done operating. I actually started doing my first Seed, pre-Seed angel investing when I was at World Remit. And a lot of the times when I invested, I had one criteria, which was that I will invest in founders and in ideas where I can be helpful. So it has to be somewhat relevant to the line of work that I do at World Remit. And a lot of the times the way I made the investment decision was a lightning moment. So if I met a company and they were solving a problem that I was having when I was building products at World Remit, that's typically how I made the decision. So it was a mix of kind of, this is immediately solving a problem for me plus the team, which is the most important thing at every stage that you invest in. And I think it's helpful to know and kind of see the end stage, because by what I mean by end stage is the private equity stage or the growth stage. So when the, you know, when I was at World Remit, that was a large company with over a thousand employees, because a lot of the decisions that you make as a founder at the very start about the culture of the firm and the core decision, particularly in fintech, which is a regulated industry. So things like do you want to be licensed? Do you want to become a bank? Do you want to have just any money license? Do you want to not have a license at all? All of those decisions are quite critical, I think, early on. So it's good to see what the end state looks like, what good looks like at the end state when you're doing seed investing and see how the founder is thinking about building an enduring organization. Absolutely. And I think also a lot of companies have been backed at seed and probably also series A in some industries where the profit margins are almost non-existent. So I think as a private equity, you can always understand an industry and the segmentation on the industry and the profit margins and the problems. And then you can probably envision or dream with the entrepreneur and say, okay, I can see how if you do all these things right, you can disrupt them, you can eat from their profit margins. But whereas like you saw a lot of investments seed in, seed in Series A where the unit economics would just not work in an industry that maybe the profit margins are very, very low. Exactly. It's important to not get stuck on those metrics, of course. I mean, that's not the criteria when you're investing at seed, but it's good to have it in mind post-investing, I would say. Mm. How do you assess a team? So you said that at Seed, it has to be clear the problem that they are solving. And then also the team is super, super important, regardless of the stage. How do you assess the team? What questions do you ask? Do you look in their background to see what they've executed before? How do you assess a team if they're first-time entrepreneurs? Hmm. First-time entrepreneurs. So the question I will ask, the key question I think every founder should ask themselves, which I ask as well, is why they're building a company. 
So not even that company specifically, but why did they decide to start something? I think I even like to ask about the moment at which they decided to start a company. What was happening in that moment? Where were you? Who were you speaking to? Because that's a very critical moment in their life as a founder. So it's important for me to understand that moment. And that helps me also answer what is the motivation behind this person to start a company. And I'm a little less focused on kind of historical examples of experiences of resilience. I think that's really important. But what I care about more is the answer to that question, why? The convincing and the authenticity of the answer and the level of focus. So if you have your motivation will effectively determine your focus because you're going to be going through, you need to be resilient, of course, but you're going to be going through so many challenges as you grow the company from the very beginning, the building and the IPO or exit stage. So yeah, that's the one question that I always ask. Do you have some examples of good answers or answers along the lines, as you said, you have to be intrinsically motivated to solve a problem? And maybe do you have some examples of bad answers or not necessarily bad, but answers that make you wary of the dedication of the entrepreneur? So for the bad answer, I think it's very clear when the answer is not authentic, meaning particularly the way they came up with the idea or the reason they decided to start a company is not something that's very foundational to them, but it's something that is more of a phase. I think that's when we typically see the bad answers. And actually, sometimes when I ask the question why to the founders, I can see while they're answering, they're kind of realizing I don't have the why figured out. <laughs> I just want to do it, but I don't have the why clearly figured out. In terms of the good answer, it actually, it happens both ways. Sometimes I meet founders where they don't care so much about the idea. They're an entrepreneur at heart. They've attempted so many different companies or businesses, even from their early childhood, and they're more opportunistic and they just go execute. So there are examples of that where you have three kind of young hackers and they just want to go build something and they don't really care what it is, whatever sticks. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that works as long as they're passionate and they're incredibly hardworking and they're constantly testing. And then there's the other answer, which is, you know, it's coming from your personal pain points. So for example, World Remit would be a good example, which was started by, if the founder was from, I want to be correct, I think Somaliland or Somalia, one of the two, but Effectively, he went through the experience of sending money back home every week. He was working in London and the fees that he had to pay to Western Union or other incumbents were just unmanageable. So that really came from a, his personal pain point that gave him the endurance to go build effectively one of the biggest digital payment networks globally. So I think you get a mix of the two. Amazing. So if you have a problem, just go and try and solve it. <laughs> it's always a good yeah. start. When investing, we're always kind of balancing out if it's good. If someone, let's say with a consulting background, they found a gap into the market and they want to go after it because you do have a lot of examples where that actually works. They understand the market so well. They maybe don't necessarily have the personal pain point, but they understand the market so well they've put together a team that is complementary and they go after the market and that kind of that works so you definitely have examples as you mentioned both from an opportunistic side but also from someone that has the pain point but the worst would be someone that they don't even know like why they're starting the business exactly and then it all really comes down to actually the soul of the business the authenticity behind why you want to do this and you the founder believing in it is very important because that's what's going to persevere you throughout the challenges that come your way. 
what does the investment process look like? Like how long is it? How many calls maybe do you do per week? So for founders listening, if they reach out to you, how do they reach out to you? What should they expect? So, I mean, you know, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn. You can email me. All of that is on the GC website. From a process standpoint, you know, it depends. We don't have actually, I know we are a large fund, but in terms of the number of investors, it's actually not a very large number. And particularly because we operate in these small groups, depending on, you know, the stage and the sector, we can come to decisions really quickly. And a lot of the founders that we work with, it's common that we build that relationship over time. So there's an element of trust. So when the time comes for the investment, it's actually very quick because often it's a theme that we know. A lot of the investors at GC also come from a mix of operating background, which helps kind of going deeper into certain technical topics. So the investment process can be quite quick. You just need to have one champion. There needs to be one person at GC, a partner at GC, who's willing to put their neck down the line effectively and lead the investment. Let's go a little bit more into your favorite area of inclusion. I mean, fintech was just historically very, very successful. There are a lot of things that can be done. And then you have also crypto. What gets you excited within the fintech and crypto space nowadays? So specifically on the intersection of fintech and crypto, and actually that ties in very well into the theme of inclusion. What gets me excited still about crypto is the potential of crypto as future payment rails, particularly for cross-border payments. And that's kind of what I've seen, I've experienced working in Africa, where you have volatile currencies. You're in an emerging market, you work with volatile currencies, and there's lack of USD access. So these are large importing countries. And they don't have liquidity, meaning they don't have access to USD. But a lot of that is actually as a result of there being a black market for their own currency and not having the right controls in place. So I was a cynic of crypto, you know, before I joined Worldremit. When I was at Worldremit, when I started doing business in countries like Nigeria and a few other emerging markets, I kind of saw that crypto was actually a mechanism for people who live in Nigeria to have savings mm. effectively. So for them... You know, if the, you're receiving money, and I'll give you a specific example, capital controls was introduced in Nigeria when I was at World Remit, and that meant that the funds that you receive from, let's say, London or the US into your bank account in Nigeria had to be converted at the government's rate. And there was also a black market for that exchange, which offered much better rates. So people, instead of receiving money digitally into their bank accounts, because that would be the forced conversion rate, which is not good they started going for cash. So they went to the cash pickup locations, collected dollars, and then went to the black market to convert it. Of course, that's not the path you want to take as a digital remittance company. Even if people are going to cash pickup locations, that's not the future and it's also not safe at all. So we saw that as a trend, but then crypto also boomed. So we saw the adoption of USDC particularly, so central stable coins, absolutely boom in these countries because they mm. decided to receive funds through crypto instead of doing it through the digital method. So that's when I kind of opened my eyes into, okay, let's think about democratizing access to dollars in emerging markets and how we can do that with crypto, how we can replace antiquated messaging systems like SWIFT, particularly for larger volume payments, because from a local payment perspective, the local rails are very good. In Europe, we have open banking, we have SEPA, these are instant payments. In Brazil, you have PIX. In India, you have UPI. US now has Fed now. So local payments are sorted, but cross-border payments are still mainly running on SWIFT. So that's one topic that I'm kind of spending time in the new year. 
Interesting. And then how, like, what would a company building here would look like? They would use like a layer one type of blockchain and then just a company would get regulated and then build a very nice user interface? So there are multiple, there are different ways of doing it. One of the companies that we've invested in is Circle, which is the USDC miner. They offer stable coins, they issue stable coins for these payments. And then there are other companies that focus on this on the consumer side. Uh, for example, Mike Kodak, who was previously at Monzo and Deliveroo, he started a company where he is effectively wise, but using crypto rails, which is much cheaper and faster. So the other side of things is B2B payments when you're working with mm. larger volume payments. And I think a lot of the crypto companies actually decided to focus on that payment volume because that's really run by Swift. There is no wise really for large volume B2B payments. So effectively, the way you get started is by tapping into the liquidity pools. First, you need to build the infrastructure. That infrastructure is both connectivity to a lot of banks that are crypto friendly, which is not at today is not very easy to find and build connectivity to. And then the second thing you need to do is you need to make sure you are compliant from a regulation perspective, which again is also very difficult because the regulator has decided to be quite opaque and not very transparent and not very decisive in certain crypto regulation, although that's changing in Europe with Mika. First, you do the infrastructure. Then you decide what to layer on. A lot of the SMEs are very underserved when it comes to accounts payable, accounts receivable, and a lot of payment automation. Same with enterprises. So you can go to product route or you can become Rails. So you can power other financial service companies like a Worldroom at Orwise to do their payments more efficiently rather than using Swift. Let's touch briefly on fundraising. What is the number one mistake that you see founders do when they go out and fundraise? Particularly in the last year, what I've seen a lot is founders raising large seed rounds without really testing their idea. And what we're seeing now in Europe is recycling of talent. And that's very exciting because actually we're seeing operators, experienced operators who have faced certain problems, particularly in the enterprise category. So they were building products and they would effectively face work with legacy technology, which makes it really difficult for them to build their own products. And a lot of the internal tools had to be built you know, in-house. And now those operators are leaving and saying, you know, I had to go build this, let's say at Worldrum, at a Monzo, at a Revolut. And now like, we didn't actually have to build it. It wasn't core to our business. I'm going to productize it and I'm going to sell it. So these are very credible founders. They face their problem. They kind of know how to build it and sell it. And they come to market like that. And they, of course, raise very large seed rounds based on their profile and credibility. Mm. The problem is that when you do that, when you raise a seed round, the clock starts ticking. So if you haven't done your exploration and the testing of the idea, inevitably you're going to be wasting your funds because you have to start hiring and you might not be hiring the right people. So I think the founders should also be patient. These new founders, particularly experienced operators, they should be patient coming into the market. They have the credentials. They're going to be able to raise a large round. It, that's not going anywhere. There's a lot of capital in Europe. Yep. So that's not the problem. The problem is that they should feel 100% confident that they have tested the idea and they have a clear hypothesis that they're testing, at least. I'm seeing a lot of the second-time founders actually being very mindful on how and when they raise their seed round <laughs> compared to a lot of first-time founders who are just more optimizing, let's raise the biggest round possible mm. and then we'll figure it out. And also there are like two train of thoughts. I was wondering, like, what do you think about just chatting with investors? Like some investors say, we like to talk with entrepreneurs early when they're not fundraising. And I know that this kind of maybe makes sense from a relationship building perspective. 
And then the other train of thought, well, like you should really prepare, have everything ready. I don't want just to chat with you. I want to make sure that you have thought about this very, very well. And when you go in, into the market, go into a systematic process. What do you think? Yeah. So this is a very good question. So from my perspective, I'm always there at this stage of ideation. And I think it's definitely a dilemma for the founders because they want to be able to test their idea. And speaking to venture investors is a way to test their idea oftentimes because the venture investors see a lot of companies and they have good market knowledge of, you know, what has worked, what hasn't worked. A lot of the time, you know, I spend, actually, I spend speaking to CFOs. I'm trying to understand their tech stack. I'm trying to understand their limitations. So actually, if you speak to the right investors, I think it would help your ideation process. But I think the only reason that I can be helpful to the founders that are ideating or as GC, we can be helpful is because we all specialize in certain sector domains. So a lot of my specialty is more focused on, again, the CFO stack, enterprise, payment solutions, cross-border payments. Then I have my colleague, Alex Tran, who leads a lot of our emerging markets investing. He leads our consumer fintech investing. So we would effectively be pointing the founders that come our way you know, we'd be pointing them to the right people within the firm who are experts. So, for example, Quentin Clark, who leads our enterprise group, used to be the CTO of SAP and Dropbox prior to GC. So if mm. you're building in the ERP category, I can think of a better person for you to speak to, to kind of test your hypothesis. So GC is a very collaborative firm. We all specialize on certain domains and there's incredible trust between the partners. And we'd like to be with the founder at the ideation stage. And another reason for that is because we have a creation fund where we actively build companies. So it could be that we come up with the idea together with the founder and we decide to build the company together, or there are already ideas that we have in the creation ecosystem that we might be suggesting to the operators that are ideating. So GC, I think is particularly, especially positioned to help founders at the ideation stage because of this flywheel of creation talent and seed investing. Super interesting. This this reminds me actually about Craft Ventures and David Sachs. I know that also they have within their LP agreement that they're going to create some companies within the fund and then, yeah, they will spin them off. I think it's a super interesting model. Yeah, particularly we tend to create companies in categories where there is high barriers to entry. So either that's a distribution problem. So let's say you're trying to sell to banks or, you know, large enterprises or to hospitals. So healthcare is a very big focus for us in our creation practice. Or it could be that you need to get regulated and getting those licenses take a long time. Or it could be that it's very capital intensive, like building an ERP. So we would effectively, when the idea comes to us and the founder comes to us, sometimes we will say, this is going to take a lot of capital and strategic connections. So maybe we build this together rather than me doing a seed investment here. So some of the companies that we, you know, created were Livongo, where we were quite involved and Hayek was the first creation. So mm -hmm. getting on board all the airlines and, and hotels. And so typically we focus on these categories with a distribution problem or a cold start problem. Cool. Got it. And for the health practice, who is the best partner to talk to? So Chris Bischoff, who sits in London leads our healthcare practice global. So he would be him working with Alex Momeni, who also sits in London and leads our healthcare practice here, would be the right people to speak to. 
Got it. I have a good friend and he's expanding to the US now uh, and they have a very interesting product already, but yeah, they're selling to different type of customer segments right now and they try to figure out which one is the best customer segment to sell. Um, yeah, I'll tell him just to maybe send a message to Chris. If we change gears a little bit and we get a bit personal, tell me about a moment you struggled in your career and what were the learnings coming from it? One particular moment was actually just before I started my investing career, just before I joined TA, I was just maybe taking a step back. A lot of the coverage for investing firms, any investment firm in private equity or in venture capital, typically in Europe is geo-based. So there will be instead of sector-based. So again, that was one of the reasons I joined GC because I am a thematic investor. But because it's geo-based, I joined TA with the assumption that I will be covering our Turkey practice. Because I'm, I'm originally from Turkey and, you know, we had, you know, there was an Italian associate covering Italy. We had someone focusing on Germany and I joined with the intention, you know, that I would be effectively investing in Turkey. But the week before I started, there was a coup in Turkey, a military coup. So I was sitting in Turkey thinking, right, so do I have a job now? What happened to my <laughs> visa? And I just lost my right to work in the U.S., so it was like a super chaotic moment, mm -hmm. but of course there was also the intention that when I joined TA, I'll focus a lot on technology because that's mainly where we focus on from a sector perspective. So of mm -hmm. course the Turkey coverage was out the door, but what I thankfully they said to me, and I also agreed with was that I would do a specialized technology coverage. So this was a huge silver lining for me because in emerging markets, you will get certain periods where your country is really thriving and mm -hmm. doing incredibly well, and you're one of the few people who can actually focus on the region and you have the special connections and having that geo connection, particularly in those markets is actually really valuable and a strong differentiator. But the emerging markets go in waves. So you might have 10 years of amazing business activity and you'll have five years of not so great volatile activity. So a lot of investors, Turkish investors who focused on Turkey up until kind of, let's say 2013, you know, they had their run and they did really well, but when the market turned, their specialty disappeared. Mm -hmm. My silver lining was that I actually never ended up focusing on my geo differentiation. I had to build my sector knowledge from day one. I was a very research-driven investor. That's how I built a trust with founders. And that's actually how I realized I, this is the only way I can invest is if I have the sector expertise. So that was one kind of defining moment in my investing career to see what kind of an investor I become. So it turns out that the obstacle was the way in the end. Exactly. And it turns out that often obstacle is the way, I'd yes. say. Yeah. <laughs> if you would start a business tomorrow, where would you look and what would the first steps be? Hmm. <laughs> so I've looked, definitely looked into the crypto cross-border payments category quite a bit, but maybe I'll talk about something else, which is the replacing of the legacy technology system. So if you were an operator at a fast growing digital company during COVID, for sure you went through like incredible growth because remittance was a good example, right? Because a lot of the cash pickup locations were closed because of COVID. Therefore, many people switched to digital remittance. It was the same thing with neobanks. Many people couldn't go to the bank to open a bank account, so they went to Monzo or Revolut. These companies saw suddenly incredible growth and adoption. The problem is you realize your legacy systems actually block you from growing. Your ERP systems are not up to date. You can't reconcile your numbers. You can't do your onboarding. The compliance stack completely falls apart when you have that sudden unexpected growth. So coming out of that growth journey, 
you know, my focus was, okay, like, how do we transform these legacy systems? Because they're so mission critical, you can't replace them, but you can effectively abstract them. So you keep the core ledger, but a lot of the workflow tools around the ERP, you can actually productize and digitally transform. So that's, I think, one of the things, one of the topics I'm going to focus on as a founder at the ideating stage. And the way you do it is, you know, you already have the connections probably. You've already went through the problem. So mm. start from day one and kind of see what, what was particularly failing and where is the share of wallet? So where is like the focus area? Like, what's the first product you should be building? What's the insertion points? Mm. Tell me about a book that had an outsized impact on your life. It's a classic, but it's an Alchemist. The Alchemist, yes. And it goes back to the question of, you know, you said the obstacle is the way. That's one thing that I've learned in my career. Obstacle is often the way. For COVID, when COVID happened as well, that's when I decided to switch kind of into from investing into operating. I wouldn't have that have had that opportunity actually if it wasn't for the shock that came with COVID and some of the disruptions in my life. And that's what Alchemist teaches: is that you have to trust in the journey, and there will be obstacles coming your way, but it actually all happens for a reason. As long as you have purpose, with that purpose, you will be having the right learnings from those obstacles and it'll actually be the opportunity. So you just need to trust in the journey. <laughs> trust trust the journey. No, it's a beautiful book. I will reread it. And if Zeynep from eight years ago, when she was an investment analyst, would listen to this episode, what would you tell her? This, that you have to trust in the journey. You have to trust in the journey in the sense that it kind of happens anyways. Like all the obstacles come your way and you cannot control it and you need to be okay with the uncertainty. So I think emotionally managing that is important and kind of reminding yourself whenever an obstacle comes your way that what will be the learnings from it, focus on that rather than trying to change things because a lot of things you can't change. And the second thing I would say is the importance of people connections. Effectively, the people you meet in whatever context you meet them. I think giving them time and being really focused during that time you give them, being present is incredibly important because you never know when you'll run into that person again. And yeah, so I think with the biggest value out of venture investors is their network. So mm. I think naturally it's important for you to nourish that and think about that, you know, at every engagement you have. Trust the journey and be, be patient, be present, be present. I like that. Yeah, be present. Yeah. Love that. Yeah. <laughs> Zeynep, thanks so much for taking the time. This this was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me.